0: initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville, faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's a great pleasure to be back at Franciscan University of which I am proud to be an alumnus, class of 2004. I think judging from this scene tonight, the next time we try this, Mike, we might want to do it in Heinz Field. <laughs> but thank you all very much for uh, coming, and thank you for all that you do here. Uh, in the early 1990s, uh, Pope John Paul II heard that a distinguished Polish actor by the name of Jerzy Stuhr, was in Rome. So he invited Mr. Storr to dinner. And Mr. Storr was properly impressed by the invitation and came up to the papal apartment. Pope said his usual rapid-fire Latin grace. And sits his guest down and says, So, Paniersi, tell me, what brings you to Rome? And Storr looks across the table and he says, Your Holiness, I am playing in forefathers' e." Forefather's Eve, I take it from the blank looks on all of your faces, is not entirely well known on this campus. It's the most important play in the history of Polish theater. It's such a powerful evocation of Polish national consciousness that its performance uh, was banned in those parts of Poland occupied by Prussia and Russia between 1795 and 1918. Okay, so Storr is playing in Forefather's Eve. Pope says, ah, Forefather's Eve, Adam Mitskevich, wonderful. Talks for about 10 minutes about how important this play is, uh, recites large chunks of the play from memory. So, Panierji, tell me, what role do you take? And uh, Stor looks across the dining room table at the Pope and says, Holy Father, I regret to report that I am Satan, <laughs> who is a character in the play. Pope thinks about that a minute and says, Well, none of us gets to choose our roles, do we? <laughs> the papacy was not a role that Carol Voite was sought. It was, however, a role he fulfilled in a striking way for 26 and a half years and fulfilled as a continuation, as an expression of the defining commitment of his life, which was to be a Christian disciple. As we approach his beatification on May 1st, I think it's very important to underscore this. This was a man of enormous human gifts, great linguist, great thinker, accomplished poet, sportsman, wonderful friend, great public personality. But all of this was for him, an expression of that fundamental commitment, which was to live his life in conformity with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometime in his early 20s, he was so seized by the truth that Saint Paul called in 1 Corinthians the more excellent way, that he decided to commit his whole life to living that more excellent way and to invite others to either meet it if they had not had the opportunity to do so or to deepen their appreciation of that more excellent way if they had, in fact, already met the Lord. So everything that happens from the early 1940s on, underground seminarian, priest, philosopher, poet, playwright, bishop, archbishop, cardinal, pope, and everything that happens in the pontificate, it seems to me, has to be understood as an expression of that radical conversion to Christ, of that Christian discipleship. And that's what's being lifted up before the whole church, and indeed before the whole world, on May 1st. As I said to one of your philosophy professors earlier tonight, who's apparently subjecting his students to person and act, otherwise then is the acting person in a bad translation. We are not beatifying his prose style. You can laugh at that. It's not impious to laugh at. That. What we are lifting up is a life of heroic virtue. It's interesting uh, that um, the questionnaire that was given to those who were asked to be formal witnesses for the beatification process, of whom I had the honor to be one, uh, was organized in terms of virtues. You were asked to think through this life in terms of the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, the uh, cardinal virtues of prudence, justice, courage, and moderation, and then there was a closing section called Other Virtues, from which, by the way, I deduce that if any of you is interested in being beatified or canonized, you must tell your more enthusiastic relatives not to depict you with a halo prematurely. It <laughs> was actually a question on this questionnaire, have you ever seen a depiction of the servant of God with a halo? I called the postulator and I said, what is number 122 about here? This is apparently a hangover from the older uh, beatification and canonization process and uh, from a medieval notion that if someone was depicted with a halo uh, prior to their sanctity being officially recognized by the church, This is considered possibly diabolical. So no pictures of Father Mike with a halo. (laughs) (laughs) Much as you may think it, don't do it, because you'll make a mess of it later on. (laughs) It's not those virtues, however, that I want to talk about tonight. this was a pontificate of enormous consequence for the church and the world. And although it is a mere six years uh, since the Pope's death, I think we can already see achievements of the pontificate that will influence the life of the church and the world certainly for decades Quite possibly for centuries to come. And I want to uh, outline very briefly uh, 10 enduring accomplishments of this pontificate tonight. Those of you who are feeling slightly lazy need not take furious notes because all of this is in the back of the end and the beginning which you're all going to run out to your computers in order on Amazon.com anywhere, which actually gives a better discount than your bookstore. <laughs> now, if Dr. Hahn is here, I hope he will not report me to Doubleday for recommending that people go to Amazon. That's a mortal sin in that world. Right ten enduring accomplishments of the pontificate of John Paul II, of which the first was the reconstitution of the papacy itself. In 1978, when Wojtyla was elected pope, both the world and the church had an idea of the papacy that had evolved over centuries, according to which the principal job of the pope was to be a kind of CEO of R.C. Inc. Pope was primarily an Uber administrator. He, his primary job was to manage the Roman Curia, and this was an essentially an administrative pope, post. John XXIII and Paul VI had begun to break out of this a little bit, but that's still what everybody thought popes were for. Why do we have popes? Well, somebody's got to run headquarters. Now, if, however, you take the Second Vatican Council, and particularly the uh, Constitution on Divine Revelation, seriously, and understand that the form of the church derives from the Word of God, and you look at the Word of God, particularly the Acts of the Apostles, what do you find out about Peter? Well, when he's not being a putt and messing things (laughs) up, you find out he's a witness to the resurrection, he's the church's first great preacher, he brings the first Gentile converts into the church, thus making it possible for all of us to enjoy pork chops and crab cakes for the last (laughs) 2,000 years. He's the center of the church's unity and that the discussion about what do we do with these Gentile converts gets resolved around him at what is sometimes called the Council of Jerusalem. He's an evangelist, and then according to the tradition of the church, he's the first bishop of Antioch, feast we celebrated yesterday, and then the, the uh, bishop of Rome. And ultimately, he's a martyr, and as those of you who uh, have done the Scavi tour at St. Peter's know, you can get within reaching distance of the remains of this Galilean fisherman today. What he isn't is a manager. Peter is not the CEO of this little Christianity firm that's trying to get some market share in the world of Mediterranean spirituality in what we call the first century. John Paul II, who was a man of the Second Vatican Council, reached back into all of those images of Peter in the New Testament and made them the substance of the papacy for the late 20th century and the early 21st, thereby renewing the office of Peter as primarily an office of evangelical witness, as primarily an office that instantiates in the church today, a response to the Lord's command to Peter in Luke 22, 32, and you, Peter, when you have been converted, you must turn and strengthen your brethren. John Paul II took that as a dominical instruction, not simply to Simon, son of John, now known as Peter, but to all of those who filled the office of Peter in the the task was to strengthen the brethren by being yourself a witness to the truth of God in Christ. This turned out to be successful beyond anybody's wildest imagination, because it turned out that the world was looking for that kind of a witness at the end of the 20th century. That manifestation, as as Dr. Martin and Dr. Hahn and Father Mike and I were talking about on the television program earlier today that kind of a manifestation of spiritual fatherhood. But that kind of reclaiming of the papacy that he did is also important as a reminder for the future, that all genuine reform in the Church is by reference to the form of the Church in the sense of the Constitution that Christ himself gave the church. Constitution in the British sense, not the American sense. All genuine reform is a matter of reform. It's retrieval and renewal. Retrieval in the service of renewal. So, the reconstitution of an evangelical papacy for the 21st century. Secondly, John Paul II, I think it becomes ever more clear, completed and in some sense saved the Second Vatican Council. Students here are too young to remember this. Um, Those of us who lived through it probably don't want to think about it all over again. But the fact of the matter is that by 1978, there was one gang in the church that thought the Second Vatican Council was a horrible mistake. It never should have happened. And there was another gang that thought that the Second Vatican Council had simply dissolved this form of the church that I just spoke about, and that we could make up church. I think there's some dumb song called Sing a New Church into Being or something. (laughs) That's the idea. That's the idea. So the council itself was getting lost. The council itself was getting lost, and there was a reason for this. The reason was that Vatican II was very different from the previous 20 general councils. Each of them had provided keys for their own interpretation. They had written creeds like Nicaea or Constantinople. They had condemned heresies. They had written canons. They had uh, defined doctrine, Ephesus, Chalcedon, etc., and I see it. Vatican II did none of that. Defined nothing, condemned nothing, wrote no new laws for the church, didn't produce a creed. So how were we to know what was the key to unlocking the riches of these 16 documents? That was the open question in 1978. And for the next 26 years, John Paul II systematically set about providing authoritative keys for interpreting the 16 documents of the Second Vatican Council built around the central notion of the church as a communio or communion of disciples. This rescued Vatican II from some of these occasionally shabby cat-and-dog fights in which the Church had gotten involved for the previous 40 years, and it renewed the idea of the Council as a new Pentecost. Why did John XXIII call the Second Vatican Council? Carol Voitua, who participated in all four sessions of the Council, uh, as uh, bishop and then auxiliary bishop and then archbishop of Krakow, believed that the inspiration behind the council was to give the church the experience of a new Pentecost, so that the church would go into the third millennium of its history with a great burst of evangelical energy inside it and and moving it forward. That was the idea. And that idea could only be reclaimed if there were authoritative interpretations, keys, if you will, provided for those 16 documents of Vatican II. And that is what the pope provided. He provided this through his magisterium in his encyclicals. He provided it through the mechanism of the Synod of Bishops, particularly the extraordinary Synod of 85, uh, as well as synods on priestly formation, consecrated life, mission and role of the laity of the church, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, one step at a time, he went through the whole corpus and provided the keys by which the church can now reappropriate uh, the council for the future. Perhaps the most important of these uh, is uh, the interpretation of the mission of the church that John Paul II provided in the 1991 encyclical *Redemptoris Missio, the mission of the Redeemer, where the Pope writes that the Church does not have a mission, as if mission were one of seven or eight other things the Church did. The Church is a mission. The Church is a mission. Everything the Church does is about evangelization. Everything the Church does is about evangelization, and everything in the church is to serve the cause of offering the world the possibility of radical conversion to Jesus Christ. That's a counsel worth thinking about and pondering and studying, and we can now do that thanks to John Paul II. The third enduring accomplishment of this pontificate uh, was of course the pope's pivotal role in the collapse of European communism and what we call the Revolution of 1989. As I describe in the new book, this was the culmination of a 40 year long war between Karol Wojtyla and communism, which was fought uh, not always with the Marcus of Queensberry rules uh, on the bad guy side of this. This was a very nasty business. Uh, but it was a business in which Wojtyła believed that the truth would eventually win out if the truth were spoken clearly and winsomely and forcefully enough. And by triggering a revolution of conscience in Poland in June 1979, uh, the Pope ignited a different kind of politics throughout Central and Eastern Europe that provided the people of those hard-pressed regions, weapons of resistance that communism simply could not match. This was important in itself in that it put paid to the greatest tyranny in human history, but it was also important for two other reasons, John Paul's culture-first sense of history. If you convert the culture, then the politics and economics will follow in due course, which he deployed to such effect during those nine days in June 1979, where he restored to the Polish people their cultural identity and the fullness of the truth of that identity, and thereby launched a new form of politics that eventually became the Solidarity Movement, was a terribly important reminder that two of the great myths of modernity were, in fact, falsehoods that were pernicious. The first of these was the Jacobin myth, that politics runs history, and that the heart of politics is power understood as my capacity to impose my will on you. And then the Marxist myth, according to which history's dynamics are merely the exhaust fumes of impersonal economic processes. Those two dumb ideas, (laughs) either by themselves or in combination, produced within 40 years two world wars, a cold war, Auschwitz, the Gulag, the Ukrainian terror famine, oceans of blood, mountains of corpses, greatest persecution of the church in history all in part because of these false ideas of how you bend history in a more humane direction. So 1989, properly understood, gives us a better idea of how history works and a truer idea of how to uh, bend history in a more humane direction in the future. The second thing John Paul II did from 79 to 89, was to reclaim the vocabulary of liberation from the Marxist world, which had dominated that vocabulary, which had usurped that vocabulary from 1917 on. Suddenly, it was clear that the deepest form of human liberation was liberation into the truth about oneself into the truth of one's humanity, the moral truth of one's humanity. And out of that, new kinds of culture, politics, and economics could come. The Church was the true liberator. Jesus was the true icon of authentic human liberation. That's a message embedded in John Paul II's role in 1989 uh, that is very important to reflect upon. Fourth enduring uh, accomplishment of the pontificate flowed uh, quickly from 1989, and that was uh, the Pope's understanding that the free and virtuous societies of the future, the conditions for the possibility of which he had helped create, had to be societies in which a vibrant public moral culture disciplined and tempered the tremendous human energies set loose by political and economic freedom. In making that challenge, particularly in the encyclical Centesimus Annus, the pope reminded the world that democracy and the market are not machines that can run by themselves. It's not a question of simply building the machine properly, sticking the key in the ignition, turning the engine over, and then watching it run merrily on into the future. It takes a certain kind of people, possessed of certain virtues, to make that machinery run so that the net result is genuine human flourishing, not human degradation. That was a terribly important lesson to suggest to a 21st century world, which was tempted to think that my old friend Frank Fukuyama was right, that history was over, that all we were going to do is fine tune the machinery from here on out, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. No, it takes a certain kind of people to make freedom produce the human flourishing that we wish it to produce. Fifth uh, enduring pontificate of uh, enduring pontificate, fifth enduring accomplishment of this pontificate was to put the quest for Christian unity, the ecumenical imperative, if you will, at the center of the Catholic Church's self-understanding. This is not something that comes naturally to Catholics. Even forty-some years after Vatican II, uh, ecumenical endeavor for Catholics is like dessert. You know, it's dolce. It tastes good, makes you feel good, but it's not necessary, most Catholics think. John Paul II had a very different view. He believed that the unity that Christ had bequeathed his church, let them be one Father as you and I are one, had never been completely shattered, that all who were baptized in Christ were in some sense in some form of communion with each other, and therefore in some form of communion with the Catholic Church, and that the point of the ecumenical endeavor was to recompose that unity more fully over time so that there might be, at some point in the future, one church uh, raising up one witness, uh, offering up one sacrifice, celebrating one uh, set of sacrifices. The Pope's accomplishments in this field uh, were, I think one has to say, minimal, with one significant exception that I'll get to in a moment. I think Wojtyla came to the papacy in October 1978 really convinced that with sufficient effort and goodwill and prayer and a little boost from grace, that the division between Rome and Constantinople, between Christian East and Christian West, could be closed by the end of the second millennium. That a division that had been formalized in 1054 could be recomposed by the end of that second millennium so that Peter and Andrew could walk across the threshold of the third millennium together. That was not to be. It was not to be primarily because orthodoxy was not in a condition to hear that and respond to it. This was in some respects a matter of theology. It was perhaps in even larger respects a matter of psychology. There is, I dare say, not a Catholic in this room, who, on going into church last Sunday, had the idea in their mind, the fact that I am not in full communion with the Patriarch of Constantinople is an essential part of what I'm about to do here. I mean, if any of you thought that, please raise your hand and you will you get the door prize tonight. However, there were millions of Orthodox Christians who went into their churches last Sunday with the thought, I am not in communion with the bishop of Rome, as an essential part of their orthodox identity. This this had developed over a millennium and indeed before that. Because 1054, I think we have to say, was not a discrete moment in history. 1054 was the cash out of a division that had been widening really since the Seventh Ecumenical Council. so that, that was the problem there. Of course, the problem within the ecumenical fracture of the Western church, which begins in the 16th century in earnest, was a different set of problems. There, the problem was that if you will permit the sporting image in a town still smarting from its Super Bowl loss, here, <laughs> the goalposts kept moving. Liberal Protestantism was in such a state of doctrinal, ecclesiological, and moral chaos in the late quarter, last quarter of the 20th century, that it was like trying to dialogue with jello. I mean, it keeps (laughs) pushing away. The more you encounter it, the more it keeps pushing away. Or a balloon would be perhaps a more pleasant image. Any event, there was nothing much going on likely there which was a great sorrow to the Pope, but I think one he recognized as the reality of the situation. The unexpected success on this front was that millions of evangelical, fundamentalist, and Pentecostalist Protestants, whose grandparents would have unblushingly referred to the Pope as the Whore of Babylon, suddenly found in the Bishop of Rome the greatest Christian witness of the moment. And a whole new ecumenical dialogue, evangelical Catholic, not liberal Protestant Catholic, emerged over the last uh, quarter of a century that I believe is the future of the ecumenical movement within Western Christianity. As these churches of the mainline Protestant world, uh, or as my great friend, the late Richard Newhouse, used to put it from the main line to the old line to the (laughs) sideline, which he could get away with saying having been a Lutheran, Um, as those churches demographically fade, and the two growing ends of the world Christian reality are Catholicism and evangelical Protestantism, it it was a minor miracle that these two communities found each other and began a conversation that I think will define the intra-Western ecumenism of the 21st century. This happened, first of all, here in the United States. It happened when evangelicals and Catholics, who were really very suspicious of each other, I mean, come on, we thought they were a little crazy, and they thought we were the whore of Babylon. I mean, this is not. (laughs) This is not a good space for anybody to be in here. We discovered each other in the foxholes of the culture war, particularly after Roe versus Wade, and the struggle with the pro-life uh, cause. Suddenly, you looked over in the next foxhole, and there's one of those crazy guys. Born again stuff, et cetera. You know, Bible, what's all that about? And they look over, and they say, wow. You know, maybe they're not satanic after all. (laughs) But I think it was the witness of the Pope, the unapologetic witness to Christ, that became the glue that held all of this together to the point where on the day the Pope died, Dr. Billy Graham told some news source or other that John Paul II had been the greatest Christian witness of the second half of the 20th century, which, as I told Dr. Graham's daughter-in-law in in Rome the next day, was a very generous thing for him to have said, uh, since he was the only plausible other contender for the title (laughs) he had bestowed on the Pope. And then, having said that to Mrs. Graham, I had this little flashback, and I remembered that the last thing that Cardinal Carol Wojtyla had done before leaving for Rome to attend the conclave that would elect him Pope was to give permission for Billy Graham to preach in St. Anne's Collegiate Church in Krakow, which is to the Jagiellonian University what St. Mary the Virgin is to Oxford University. It's the university church. And I thought, what a fantastic symmetry this was. And what a great tribute to the ecumenical sensitivity and sensibility of this Archbishop of Krakow, who, after all, would not have had too much opportunity for ecumenical dialogue in his own diocese. I mean, you wanted to have the chair of octave for for Christian unity in Krakow, you had to go round up the Protestants and the Orthodox, because there weren't that many of them around. I mean, this is a 99% Catholic country, and yet he felt the importance of of building these uh, bridges. The sixth uh, enduring accomplishment of the pontificate, frequently noted at the time of the Pope's death, was his recomposition of the Catholic Church's relationship to uh, Jews and Judaism frequently commented on in a very positive way, and, and gratefully so, but perhaps not fully misunderstood. Uh, not fully understood. It's the media, so it could have been fully misunderstood. <laughs> Except on NBC. Um, John Paul II certainly believed in civility, tolerance, De- defeating the demon of anti-Semitism. He had, had seen the wickedness of this in, in his own country, in the viciousness of Nazi anti-Semitism. He had a unique sense of the pain of world jewelry in the 20th century. But he wanted to get all that rubbish out of the way, the accumulated rubbish of 1900 years of controversy, in order to reopen the theological conversation between faithful Christians and faithful Jews that had broken down circa 70 AD when what became the Christian movement definitively split from what eventually became rabbinic Judaism to great distress ever since. We should recompose, he believed, the conversation about what does it mean to claim Abraham as father in faith, What does it mean to be in a covenant relationship with this Yahweh who turns out to be the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? What does it mean to live as light to the nations with the Ten Commandments as your common moral code? That's the conversation he wanted to have in the 21st century. And if that happens, and it already is happening in some venues, Uh, not least around the journal First Things, with which I'm proud to be associated, Uh, it's because of seeds that he planted uh, throughout the last quarter of the 20th century. And if, for the first time since 70 A.D., Christians and Jews actually begin to talk to each other theologically again, John Paul II will be able to take to be given a great deal of the credit for that. Seventh enduring accomplishment of the pontificate was to recompose the church's relationship to science and interreligious dialogue as conversations ordered to the truth. John Paul II had a great interest in science throughout his life. From his days as a young priest in Krakow, he sought out scientists as friends and conversation partners. And he knew in 1978 that 300 plus years of conflict needed to be brought to a close A, because that was the right thing to do, B, because science, he knew from the intensity of his conversation with physicists in particular was beginning to bump up against its own limits within its own methodological uh, premises and operations and was thus open to a new conversation with uh, considering the possibility of other forms of knowing the truth of things. And so he systematically set about to deal with the Galileo affair and other sore points between the church and the world of science, such that today, I think we have a rather robust conversation between uh, people of faith and uh, those in the hard sciences of physics and uh, chemistry and astronomy and astrophysics and all that, where a new problem reared its head during the pontificate was with the life sciences, because the new genetic knowledge leading to the new biotechnology leading to what my friend Leon Cass calls the Immortality Project, uh, the Promethean attempt to remake the human condition, uh, created a whole new set of issues between the church and science that now got governments and the structure of law uh, involved in a way that had not been the case when we were arguing cosmology. But when we're arguing the manufacture or remanufacture of human beings, I mean, this is suddenly, all you Star Trek fans will remember, this is three-dimensional chess here. You know, there's a lot of things going on all at once. So, real accomplishments with the hard sciences, new problems with the soft sciences. As far as interreligious dialogue uh, was concerned, I think the Pope had the view that uh, there had been a little bit too much kumbaya in all of this and a little bit less... uh, truth-centered conversation than needed to be the case, whether we were talking about Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or native religions as Africa or whatever. And he could propose that truth-centered dialogue rather than sitting down and explaining to each other how wonderful each of us actually is. Um, he could propose that Because both as a man of faith and as a man of reason, as a distinguished philosopher, he had come to the view that all truths, if they really are true, tend towards the one truth, capital T, who is God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as iron shavings tend towards a magnet. So whether the truth in question is literary, philosophical, scientific, mathematical, theological, if it's really true, it's somehow pointing you towards the truth who is God. And therefore, there should be no problem with, theoretically, a truth-centered encounter with those whose truths come from a different source. There are going to be all sorts of human problems in this, obviously. But theoretically, this is a conversation that we should welcome. Now, this too did not get as far as it might have. And of course, the last four years of the pontificate were dominated in part by the eruption onto the world stage of a particularly aggressive form of jihadist Islam, which casts the whole the very possibility of this conversation uh, into question. But I think uh, the present Holy Father, Benedict XVI, has picked up on this notion of a truth-centered interreligious dialogue in his approach to the Islamic world, which some try to set against John Paul II, which I don't think really works, to actually look at the texts uh, involved. In any event. Dialogues and truth. Eight. Write down number eight there. That's <laughs> a little snowman, you know. Two <laughs> the extension of the idea of solidarity, which he had deployed to such effect in the revolution of 1989, to the life issues. Abortion, euthanasia, care of the severely, radically handicapped, etc. John Paul II understood that solidarity, the virtue, if you will, if it was to be lived truly, had to extend generationally and not only with those with whom we find ourselves here and now. Further, he understood that the rebuilding of a culture of life, as he called it, was crucial for what he termed human ecology and for the free and virtuous society. Ecology, as he understood it, was not simply a matter of trees and whales. It was a matter of the human environment. And a human environment in which some human beings claimed the authority and the moral legitimacy to determine that other human beings were outside the community of common protection and concern was a very dangerous thing. It was dangerous to those who were declared out, obviously. It was dangerous for the free and virtuous society. It was dangerous for the human environment in the broadest sense. And at a time when the juggernaut of modern biological and genetic science married to technology seemed poised to simply run away with the future, to simply claim the future in an undisputed way. Here was this by now old and pretty rocky, fragile uh, Polish priest insisting that solidarity extended to the unborn, to the elderly, to the handicapped, to all of those whom some might be tempted to declare burdensome, troublesome, unproductive, too expensive, whatever. And that he did this through his own suffering, born with such grace, was a terribly important part of the message. I mean, this was a case where the medium really was the message, uh, and he could deliver that message. Uh, in a very powerful uh, way. The ninth enduring accomplishment of this pontificate was to leave a legacy of ideas which I describe in some le- at some length in the end and the beginning. Let me just make a couple of brief uh, offer a couple of brief examples of that legacy here. Uh, last November I had the pleasure of, giving a lecture at the University of Virginia, which is still referred to down in those parts as Mr. Jefferson's University. And the new president of the University of Virginia, Dr. Teresa Sullivan, was there, and a number of other petsy grossy as we say in Rome. Uh, Bigwigs, for those of you who have not done your Rome semester yet. And I began by saying it would perhaps be Interesting, from a scientific point of view, if we were to send right now a seismometer out to Monticello, to Thomas Jefferson's grave, to measure the rotations (laughs) when I claim, as I will claim in a moment, that at the end of the 20th century, the Bishop of Rome was the greatest defender of the prerogatives of reason in the world. Well, they cracked up. I mean, they got, they, got the, they got the idea. They got the idea. I mean, here we are 200 plus years from Voltaire, other exponents of the continental European enlightenment, Americans like Jefferson, who could not imagine that the great defender of the prerogatives of reason would be a Polish priest, a philosopher, and God help us, the Pope. (laughs) This was not the way this deal was supposed to work out here. And yet that's exactly what had happened. At a moment when the Enlightenment project was fizzling out in the sandbox of postmodernism, where there is your truth and my truth, but nothing called the truth, which is, of course, a prescription for tyranny, because the only way to settle the argument then is for somebody to impose power on somebody. In the midst of that sandbox, an adult outside the sandbox stood up and said, wait a minute. Let me say a word in defense of reason. And then let me be even bolder than that and say a word in defense of reason in dialogue with faith. Because as he put it in Fides et Ratio, faith and reason are two wings on which the human spirit soars above its present uh, circumstance. So the defense of reason uh, in a season of unreason, terribly important thing culturally. Second thing I would just note briefly in this legacy of ideas, we could talk about theology of the body, we could talk about Christian personalism, let me just mention one thing that often doesn't get mentioned here. And that is the catechism of the Catholic Church. Catechism of the Catholic Church was many things. It was an important instrument for recentering catechetics, speaking of sandboxes. <laughs> um, it was an important kind of populist instrument by which, if the brethren of the clergy here will forgive me, the people of the church could go to Father book in hand and say, Excuse me, what did you just say? <laughs> But more than that, it was a terribly important cultural and historical artifact. Did it ever strike you how interesting it was that at the end of 2000 years of Christian history and on the cusp of a third Christian millennium, only one Christian community thought it necessary and worthwhile to offer the world A comprehensive, coherent account of its faith. Nobody else thought to do that, but that's what the Catholic Church was, uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church was. It was the Catholic Church saying, here's what we believe, here's how we think we should live, here's how we pray, and we offer this to you as a proposal. We're not jamming this down anybody's throat. But if you want to know whether we still think 2,000 years out that you can put this together, that knowledge is not ineluctably fragmentary, that we do not have any real contact with the historical sources of our faith. No, we think we do. We think we're in touch with the living Christ, who is our history and our tradition. We think you can put this together in a comprehensive uh, way.
1: And here it is.
0: Very important for the church, very important ecumenically, very important culturally, very important culturally for a major cultural institution to produce something that was not intended to be a corrective to the sandbox of postmodernism, but turned out to be precisely that, and to have an enduring influence in both church and the world ever since. Finally, may all heave a sigh of relief here, the tenth enduring accomplishment of this pontificate is represented by many of the people in this room. uh, By lives transformed by an encounter with God in Christ to an encounter with Pope John Paul II. I think I mentioned this on the television program today. Uh, Two years ago, I went to visit the postulator for the beatification and canonization of John Paul II, the Polish canon lawyer who has lived in Rome for 20 years and who's become a good friend. And after a two-hour conversation about the process and how this works and what have you, uh, on the way out, he said to me, I'd like to show you our mail room. And On a table in the mail room, scattered across the table, were lots of envelopes. And in a variety of languages, they all said essentially the same thing. Pope John Paul II, heaven, and a stamp. And I said to the postulator, I said, let me get this straight. (laughs) the guys who cannot get my electric bill from one side of Montgomery County to the other can get an envelope that says, Pope John Paul II, heaven, and get it here. (laughs) And he said, it's a miracle. (laughs) And I said, you have no idea how big a miracle it is when it comes to the U.S. Postal Service. What was particularly touching about these letters is that many of them came from non-Christians, from non-believers, who somehow felt that their lives had been ennobled, enlarged, enriched, touched in an important way that they wanted to bear witness to by this man. And that's how they tried to bear their little witness, by writing this letter and throwing it like a you know message in a bottle out into the vast, storm-swept oceans of the world's postal system. <laughs> and they washed up on the right shore here. Uh, it's true, as I wrote in Witness to Hope, that Carol Wojtyla was the man seen by more human beings than anybody in the history of the world. That's true. When you add the multiplier effect of television to that, it becomes even more colossal. And it was not unexpected that the world's most visible human being would have lived at this moment in history, given the technology. What was completely unexpected is that that most visible man would be a Catholic priest and bishop, would be a Christian disciple. And that brings us, at the end, back to the beginning. No pun intended. (laughs) What made all of this happen was the radical character of this man's conversion to Christ. And that's where his life intersects with the lives of everyone in this room. Uh, Very few of us here are going to speak a dozen languages write philosophical treatises, have our poem, poetry published, be an accomplished skier, uh, have deep and imponderable mystical experiences, <laughs> make jokes with a Polish actor, etc. I mean, we're just not going to do this. But each one of us has the possibility of that radical conversion. that That's what the grace of baptism opens up the possibility of. each of us. So when you watch the beatification on May 1st, uh, remember that. This is not Superman, It's not Superman. This is a human being who made himself so transparent to the grace of God at work in his life that he could do all of those great things and give them the kind of humane and humanizing effect uh, in a world that he did, a world that had perhaps lost hope in the possibility of a human and humane future. He gave it that hope at the end of a very bad century. That's why he is a witness to hope. And that's why the end of this lecture, which has now come, is like the beginning of it. Thank you all very much. Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.